This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, The Business Station? 9.35 a.m. You are listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Philip C. and Chong Jen Sun. This is WTF, or What's the Focus, our weekly roundup show of the top stories this week and other news tidbits you may have missed. Yes, I think we have so much to cover, isn't it, for today's episode of What's the Focus? We do indeed. We're going to try and get through all of it like a speeding bullet train, but we're doing this for your own good because we want you to enter the weekend full of knowledge and lots of interesting conversation tidbits to share with whoever you uh, interact with. So that you don't degenerate and just watch Netflix (laughs) or even just stare at the Super Bowl and watch Rihanna perform, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. Did you catch Rihanna's performance, Phil? I did. (laughs) I watched it twice, actually, because it was so good. Indeed. So she performed uh, on Sunday night, uh, US time. Uh, it was a, what, 14-minute set covering yes. 12 songs. And the thing is, she performed for free. Yeah, She doesn't get paid for her Super Bowl performance. But I think uh, she gains a lot in other things. I see that uh, her streaming has been off the roof yes. since she performed. A lot of attention. And she managed to even sneak in a little um, a little makeup advertisement. when I know, she for a Fenty uh, Beauty line. Exactly. Yes. So all in all, I would say that was a pretty smart move. It's an Rihanna. investment for the future brand, I think. That's how you position it. But, you know, I think what was interesting, it just shows her repertoire, right? Managing 12 of her favorite songs in 14 minutes. And she revealed she was pregnant. With her second child. With her second child Indeed. on stage. And she could still pull it off seamlessly incredible. I am going to channel Rihanna for all my future exercise sessions. You know, if she can do it, so can I. That's how I'm going to take it. Right. But turning our attention to other things percolating over in the U.S., I think we do see that the World Bank will see a leadership change after the president, David Malpass, announced that he's stepping down. And uh, his reign at the World Bank was pretty controversial, no? Yeah, I guess some of the criticisms of uh, the World Bank and its uh, currency use that the Climate spending is too small, too scattered, uncoordinated and badly targeted and hard to access by some of the poorest countries. And the bank has also continued to fund fossil fuel projects despite claiming to face it out. So there was some data published last year and the bank apparently provided 15 billion US dollars to fund fossil fuel projects since the Paris Agreement was signed in 2015. And I think some of the leaders have been quite vocal about his departure. I think Al Gore, the former US vice president, he said that human needs the needs the head of the World Bank to fully recognize and creatively respond to civilization threatening danger posed by the climate crisis and I'm very happy to hear that new leadership is coming I think this was on the back on the interview that David Malpass has it had in New York about a, couple, a year ago where he tried to sidestep the question whether there was any scientific evidence on climate change and he kind of sidestepped it didn't give a straight answer so I think there was a lot of con- a uh, lot, lot of criticism over his lack of clarity over the response. It's interesting that actually the, the the shareholder that's not happy with David Malpass is the country that nominated him himself, which is the United States. Although truth be told, he was nominated by Donald Trump. And of course, we have had a new, very totally new administration now under President Joe Biden. That's right. Uh, and we are seeing David Malpass step down a year early. Um, I think he still had another year to serve out in his term. Uh, we do wonder, I think there's, of course, questions on who is going to be appointed next. Yep. Uh, some of the names coming up include some 
Samantha Power, who is the head of the U.S. Uh, International Development, uh, U.S. Agent, U.S. Aid, or Raj Shah, former head of U.S. Aid. I think it's a. I mean, I thought I, th- I always find it interesting to think that uh, the World Bank is appointed by the U.S., the IMF is a, is appointed by Europe. So that kind of shows. Is it a very outdated construct that we have these two? you know, Western, you know, regions nominate, you know, roles which have implications that are cross-border and global in nature. Why does the US and the EU have full right over the appointment of these lead I mean, we have tr- we have seen attempts to counter that uh, with through BRICS, for example, through mm. the uh, alliance of, of China, India, South Africa, Russia. They wanted to establish their own financial, I guess, institution to yep. kind of counter what's happening. But that hasn't really come to fruition. Um, this is the state of play at the moment as it stands. But I think the criticism with David Malpass was that he was meant to help usher in better climate financing, support for climate-related projects on the view of so many multiple cops. So the amount have not been big enough and I think that's the cons- the criticism here. And just given that the Biden administration really is championing that issue, they can't really have a head of the World Bank that's not aligned with that vision, I suppose. So uh, we'll be looking to see what happens on that front and who's going to take helm at the World Bank. But I guess still sticking to the US, let's turn over to the other side of the coin when it comes to superpower contestation and that's uh, over in China. Um, we are still seeing the fallout from the balloon incident um, and China has questioned whether the U.S. generally seeks to um, repair ties damaged by the dispute over the balloon. I think overnight we did see headlines coming from President Joe Biden that they're not going to apologize for shooting down that balloon. But President Joe Biden did say that the last three balloons that were shot down were not from China. He did clarify that. I think it's very important to contrast pre-balloon saga and post-balloon saga. So pre-balloon saga, of course, tensions were very high, but there was an effort to try and ease those tensions, especially what you saw at the Bali summit. And also initially at the moment, I think uh, the foreign secretary was supposed to head over Anthony Blinken to China to meet presidency until this uh, incursion took place. And that's rational actually for both sides, the US and China, to really move forward from this from this saga because the Chinese are still facing all kinds of domestic problems. They recently reopened. I mean, there is some incentive to do well economically, demographically, and, and to ensure a smooth opening. And at the same time, President Biden is looking towards a re-election as well. So the Chinese government, they have not disclosed the details of what Mr. Wang's stop in Munich will be, but people familiar with his schedule have said that he is expected to address the balloon dispute during his speech on Saturday morning. It's very interesting, you know, because we just talked about, you know, the US presidential elections heating up. Um, and it's just about less than two out two years away. But this will become essentially we're entering silly season and you will expect rhetoric in the US to be more muscular, more robust. So I think the ball is really more on China's court to see how they can perhaps de-escalate the tensions a bit here because I doubt it will come from the US side. Indeed, indeed. I think that's something that uh, we will be keeping an eye on for sure as the year unfolds. And can you believe that it's really only just February? <laughs> February. And we just had a recent uh, nomination. I think uh, uh, someone who just put a hand up, I think, for the Republican nomination for the U.S. presidency contest, Nikki Haley. That's right. She was the former governor of South Carolina. Um, she has said that she will be running for the Republican ticket uh, against her mentor of sorts uh, or her ally, 
Donald Trump. She was seen as very close to the president. And I think she was one of the few um, appointees that didn't uh, leave on a sour note. That's right. I, she was uh, appointed to the uh, permanent representative of the United Nations for a time. And um, she still kept in good terms with President Trump. Yeah, but she will split the pro-Trump voter base, isn't it? I think that is one of the things that perhaps you will see. Will we see the Republican uh, feel of candidates be more of the Trump guys or will they be anti-Trump in nature to mark a very different departure in tone? I was listening to a podcast um, by Vox uh, today explained where they looked at the, um, I guess, candidacy of Nikki Haley, but they also talked about all the other names that could come up in the Republican race. It's going to be quite a crowded one. Um, and of course, Ron DeSantis, current governor of Florida, is also seen as a front runner for this. Um, how this will play out is something that uh, I think everyone will be keeping an eye on. But the debate, I think, really is whether President Joe Biden will seek for re-election. I mean, he is getting getting beyond his years, I think. The, the interesting thing, though, is that when you listen to his rhetoric, to his UN State of the Union speech, that doesn't seem to be the case. He feels very intent to keep on running even post-2024. We'll start placing your bets. So we'll be keeping an eye on how that plays out. Yeah, I guess it's also a bit uh, disappointing to see because I think the relationship between Joe Biden and Xi Jinping, it did sort of improve when they met in Indonesia last year in November. And it, w- it was their first in-person gathering, but it looks like the tensions have actually es- escalated further. Okay, it's 9.44 a.m. We're heading into some messages, but we'll come back with a look at some of the top stories that have come out of Malaysia this week. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. 9.46 a.m. Thanks for staying tuned to The Morning Run. You're listening to WTF or What's the Focus, our weekly recap show and other news tidbits that you may have missed. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Chong Jensen and Philip C. Uh, we're turning our attention to some of the big headlines that have come out this week in Malaysia. And I think Petronas, uh, whether they want to or not, has been at the forefront. Um, earlier this week, we discussed comments coming out of Parliament uh, putting forth a proposal proposal uh, to, to look at whether Petronas should be listed. This came from Subang MP Wong Chen, and we actually spoke to him on the show um, to get him to explain why he thinks this should be uh, considered. Yeah, I think he did mention that, of course, some things to look at is valuations, and he, he likes the economic model in Norway. And he does think that in terms of the uh, shareholding that Petronas could possibly retain is 80% and you have to strike a balance with the other 20% minority shareholders. I think we posed to him a question in terms of whether a listing of Petronas does anything to the long-term viability of the business but I think his answer did make some sense. He says that the listing of Petronas can act, can actually ensure better long-term transpa- transparency and financial discipline because as it is when the economy is not so good in Malaysia, generally the government taps on Petronas for special dividends and does actually alter their in, uh, in terms of their operations going forward and they just make their financial planning a little bit more difficult. So once it's listed, I think it's more difficult for the government to exercise their rights to do something like that, given that you're answerable to some minority shareholders as well. Would the government want to do that, though, by having that level of transparency? That's, I think, the question, yeah. because they need the money and the basis of how you issue out will be always put into question. But I think the core reason why this IPO was proposed and mooted by Wong Chen was that he believes they will help reduce government debt. We have been talking about this 1.5 trillion debt and he believes that if we do this IPO, it could reduce the government's debt by about 30% of GDP in 10 to 15 years. 
You can listen to that conversation that we had with Wong Chen um, on the BFM app or on our website. You know, look up the podcast is listing Petronas the solution to Malaysia's debt woes. Um, this was also an issue explored by business writer P. Gunasegaram in a recent comment. Um, you can definitely read that for more perspectives on whether this is a good idea or not. And Rafizi Ramli, in fact, has said that this is something that the government could be looking mm. into. Um, but again, we don't know really, you know, how genuine I, I suppose these efforts are. This is the last crowd jewel, right? I think if to solve our problem in terms of debt, I think that is one of the biggest challenges, right? You After this, you have nothing really else left in terms of divesting to basically raise capital. So how do you time it and make it work? As you make as you made a point, listing creates more transparency, hopefully drives more efficiency. So perhaps you can unlock more value when you take the equity route. I, guess, I suppose, but in terms of transparency, as we were discussing earlier this morning, we did see overnight news coming out of Luxembourg that the Luxembourg court has ordered for Petronas assets there to be seized yet again. So this long-running saga in terms of that uh, uh, claim from purported Sulu heirs for payment, uh, this is really causing a headache for Malaysia and Petronas. Yeah, I think um, Wong Chen also he came up with some numbers. So I think he, he, he I guess he did do his analysis, and he says that if Petronas managed under a high international government's governance standard, its profit from about sixty billion annually on average could actually breach hundred billion, and a twenty percent stake it could raise some three hundred billion. So I think it looks quite enticing if you are able to bring down your government debt to GDP from what sixty plus percent and to half in the next say five to ten. 10 years, I think that's something which the government could possibly look at. Well, unfortunately, if that happens, part of the world may have to be used to pay, I think, uh, this former sultanate up to close to $15 billion if this seizure holds, right? As you said just now, Shaz, about the Petronas units in Luxembourg being re-seized again. We're going to keep an eye on what's happening on that front. Um, but uh, can we turn our attention to another uh, corporation that uh, dogged headlines this week? And that was really Linus. Uh, they, of course, have that rare earth processing plant in Kuantan. And there were questions over whether its license would be renewed. It was up for renewal uh, later this month. Uh, the government has come out to say that, yes, the license is renewed, but it's still subject to conditions that were imposed back in 2020. Uh, two of them include uh, ensuring that there's a uh, facility to dispose of waste that has been created since 2012, and also to uh, move their cracking and leaching facility outside of the country. Essentially, we don't want to be the place where they process radioactive material anymore. So I think what is very interesting is, you know, you saw the press conference made by Chang Li Kang, the Science, Technology and Innovation Ministry, I think issuing relatively a very strong statement over the rare earth processing facility. On the same day, you have the International Trade and Industry Minister Tanku Zafro Aziz visiting the processing plant. So are we seeing a disconnect here in government in how they're approaching the problem? I don't know. Um, Linus themselves have come out to say that uh, they feel that they're singled out by the government despite complying with regulations. Um, they have warned that hundreds of job, jobs will be lost um, if it is forced to close down its cracking and leaching facility. Um, so they feel that uh, they are not being treated fairly, that the I guess rules of the game have been changed since they first came. Um, but a part of me is also thinking you knew about these conditions since 2020. You've had time to actually, uh, you know, 
comply with it. You do have a facility being built over in Australia right now, so um, I'm not I, I'm not I'm not sure that I buy this uh, victimized uh, I guess yeah. uh, retreat coming from them. There's also been a lot of conversation about Malaysia having a lot of potential as a rare earth uh, deposits and minerals in the peninsula of Malaysia. So will this have long term economic impacts? Right in terms of not seeing that processing take place well and the loss of economic opportunity there. Yeah, it's an important discussion to have, you know, whether we really want to go the route of this rare earth mining, because yes, it's extremely lucrative. China's the biggest um, what producer at the moment. There, There's hardly any competition. Australia is the biggest manufacturer outside of that. Yep. Um, I think Malaysia would stand to gain a lot of economic benefit if it also partake. But the question is, at what cost do we really want to take that um, decision to, I guess, take on uh, the production of rare earth mining, uh, knowing the impact that it could have on the environment and such. So these are really weighty issues to debate. And um, I think there are arguments on both sides, yes. really. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, hidden interest from various parties as well, because we saw various diplomats, including envoys from US, Australia, Japan, EU, they have lobbied the minister in recent weeks to ensure that the production of the Linus uh, plant is not disrupted because the supply of rare earth is crucial to high-tech applications such as mobile phones, rechargeable batteries and military assets. And Charles, as you're pointing out, China controls 80%, but Linus accounts for about one-tenth of the global output. So we did speak to Mageswari Sangaralingam of Sahabat Alam Malaysia to break down the issues with the Linus plant. And you can listen to that conversation on the BFM app. Look up the podcast line drawn for Linus license. We have also reached out to Linus so we can hear their side of the story. Hopefully they do come back to us at some point on that. Uh, turning our attention to other news. Um, we heard about Petronas coming out of comments from Parliament. There have also been other comments uh, regarding EPF withdrawals also uh, coming from Parliament. Yeah. That's right. The government will not allow any new special withdrawals because although EPF members are running out of funds, the government is staying put. They do not want to allow any new special withdrawals. As you can see, the opposition is pushing very hard to say, look, I think there are a lot of people here struggling. It is their money, so they want to be able to withdraw the money. And I can imagine the pressure point in the view that we're just about heading into Ramadan and Raya. There will be a need to, I think... I think, you know, drive some riot spend for family and friends. So there's a lot of pressure. But of course, you know, we have this whole debate about your long term savings, your retirement savings. And that's the debate happening here. So there has, there is some worrying statistics um, coming out of EPF. And this was announced by Deputy Finance Minister Dato Ahmad Maslan. He said that um, savings for Malays is down to 5,500 ringgit due to withdrawals during the COVID-19 pandemic. And this was down from 16,000 ringgit pre-pandemic. So that really shows um, just the, I guess, how much people have been dipping into their retirement savings. Um, so he says that uh, I think on average uh, that it's now stands at around 8,000 ringgit. And that's one of the reasons why they're not going to allow further withdrawals. And that's why there's a lot of debate whether or not we should increase the EPF withdrawal age from 55 to 65 years. That came from a recommendation from the World Bank as we try and buffer up our retirement coffers. Yeah, I think that in terms of the opposition actually banging the table on this same issue, it seems like a really a lack of imagination and really populist in nature and they're recycling the same proposals. I think EPF has come out to say that possibly they may allow uh, the additional contribution to be raised from 60000 a year to 100000 a year. So I guess if more people which have more than 
enough money were to contribute further, that would beef up the EPF coffers again because we saw a slew of withdrawals that happened over the last one to two years. That's right. But that's that's not going to attract, that's not going to solve the problem which we have, which is the B14, M14 not having retirement savings. I'm sure the T5 and T2, T3 happy to put more money in if we see the returns come through. But the issue we have is that the B40, M40 will definitely not take up the offer because they have nothing to give. Indeed, indeed. So this is a long-running issue and really requires a lot more a lot more imaginative thinking, as you pointed out, Jensen. It does seem quite curious that whoever is in opposition will always use this uh, this suggestion in order to beef up support. Uh, but again, as we've said time and time again, this really isn't the way to go, or we don't think so. Um, it is coming up to 9.57 a.m. That's all the time that we have this morning for WTF. Uh, but before we head to the news, let's uh, we do have a quick message. As fears of recession and inflation mount in an increasingly uncertain economic environment, thinking long-term has become crucial to anyone's wallet. But where do you start? From the stock market to unit trust to robo-advisors and even cryptocurrencies, where should you park your money in today's world? Join us at the PFM Ringgit and Sense investing through a stormy 2023 event where our expert guests will share insights and tips. It's happening on Wednesday, the 1st of March. You can get your tickets at bfm.my slash events. This event is presented by Sun Life Malaysia, your lifetime insurance and takaful partner. Stay tuned for the 10 a.m news bulletin coming up next bfm 89.9 what's the focus on bfm 89.9 the business station you have been listening to a podcast from bfm 89.9 the business station for more stories of the same kind download the bfm app